name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We're once again fasting, uh, which is the majority of the year. Uh, but this time, the nature of the fast is, is different than most of the other fasts in the Feast of the Apostles. Um, so let's just take a moment to understand where we are in context of the life of the church, right, before we get into the readings from today, right? So last week was the great feast of Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is the birth of the church, right, which is of utmost importance for us, because if we look at the whole story of salvation, right, which is what we're living, right, it's not something we refer to randomly, is that in the garden we lost our unity with God, right? Is that man by nature, St. Athanasius tells us, is mortal, right? We don't live on, we don't live forever of our own selves. We're not God, right? We only were able to live forever because we were united to God himself, right? This was the grace that we had in paradise. But sin undid this, right? Is that once we began to sin, this is why we always say sin is separation from God. There's no, there's no ability for sin to coexist with God, and so we lost that unity with Him, and because of it, we lost eternal life. So man was 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 dying, right? But God, as we say in liturgy, didn't abandon us until the end, but He always visited us through His holy prophets. God didn't abandon humanity. God didn't stop dealing with humanity. God did not intend for man to simply perish, but continue to speak to man through the prophets originally while planning for our salvation. And he gave man the law, which was for them a reminder of what perfection looked like, right? Is that when we do wrong for a long time, we forget what good even looks like. So God gave the law so we would understand what it means to be righteous, because we had lost even righteousness. But we also needed an antidote to sin. And so in the Old Testament, this was sacrifice, right, to prefigure what God would do. But none of these were meant, none of these were going to be permanent solutions. And so the, the solution was going to be the incarnation, which God had planned before the foundation of the earth, which is what we were celebrating in the fast of Advent, right? Is looking at the incarnation um, in our lives. But God was promising humanity a new deal, right? The Old Testament was, if you follow these commandments that I give you, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Um, and that was, that was the Old Covenant, one that was based on, on sacrifice and ritualistic law. But as we read last week, God was preparing a new covenant. He said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the houses of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, and I showed myself their master, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I shall make with the house of Israel to the days of the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. So this is actually a really big deal, because this is talking about the indwelling of God being restored to humanity again. And it's not even just a restoration of humanity, but it's an elevation of humanity because God himself is choosing to dwell in a created thing, which is which is us. This is a is 
No one in creation has received this gift other than humanity. And that is why the angels not envy us in the, in the wrong way, but we say that you have created man a little lower than angels, um, and yet is above the angels. It's referring to Christ, but also the fact that we have God within us. We've been restored to sonship, and sonship isn't our right, right? Sonship isn't a right of humanity. It is a gift given to us by grace. The only one who has the right to sonship is our Lord, right? But he bestowed this as a grace to us, as a gift. And that's why the Feast of Theophany in the church is one of the biggest feasts of the church. It's not a small one. It actually was more important than Christmas or the Feast of the Nativity was in the early church. But all of this is just to review so we can understand what's happening right now. Where we are now in the church calendar is the Fast of the Apostles. And this fast is actually important, even though most people joke about it being for Abuna and his, and his wife, um, which I don't have. This fast is about Christian ministry. Okay, This is about the apostolic mission. And the apostolic mission is not just for the apostles themselves, but is also for all Christians, because we are all saints. We are all apostles. We are all ambassadors of Christ, as St. Paul says. Some of you are, are formally labeled servants in the church, um, but nobody isn't a servant. Right? Everybody is a servant of God. And all of us represent Him everywhere we go. And all of us are fellow laborers with Christ in the mission. As the epistle said earlier today, that we are all fellow laborers with Christ. So if we look at the, the Gospel of the Divine Liturgy, understand the sequence of events, we read of the same incident, we read about the temptation of our Lord during the Great Lent, beginning, near the beginning of Lent. But now we're reading it in a different context. Now we're looking at what the Lord did economically for us. The economy, when we say the economy, refers to the plan of salvation. So when we say economically, we mean God doing something for the sake of, of our salvation. So our Lord did certain things for us before going out to begin the service and ministry that the Father appointed for him. The first thing he did before he started his ministry was receive baptism, right? This is the incident that directly precedes the reading that we just read. When baptized, he received the Holy Spirit economically, and as we said, that's, that is a big deal, because man had lost, as we said, that indwelling. For that reason, we read, we read that he was filled with the Spirit and then led by the Spirit. This is why our Lord himself um, quotes this passage is from Isaiah, right when he begins in ministry, to make a point. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Our Lord quoted this passage and then told them, Now this is fulfilled. And this passage comes immediately after the part we just read. Right? It was to make a direct reference to say, Only in receiving the Holy Spirit, can this work begin? Only then can man's salvation begin to be worked. So he's filled with the Spirit, and then he is led by the Spirit, as in the Spirit told him to go to the wilderness, and in the wilderness he goes into retreat with God, and as we read, during that retreat he was tempted by the devil. I'm not going to meditate so much on the kinds of temptation so much today, but speak more generally. Um, 
as much as these steps that are needed before one is to serve in the name of the Lord. I want to focus more on what are these steps that we need before serving. Because um, as we said, this is not just the apostles, but for all of us. So the first thing, as we've just said, is the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which thankfully we have all received. Um, it was not so straightforward and traditional in the early days of the church. The apostles received the Holy Spirit in the upper room, as we read last week. But as we also read in the Praxis today, in the Acts of the Apostles, the Spirit came upon those who believed, and sometimes unexpectedly. The incident, for example, that St. Peter refers to um, in the book of Acts um, was not the typical way that we're, we're used to seeing. St. Peter went and preached to somebody who was not a Jew. They were expecting that it was going to be to somebody who was a Jew, first of all. And so St. Peter considered them unclean, which is why God had to come to him in a vision, knowing how stubborn Peter could be, um, and tell him, you, you need to baptize um, whatever I call clean, don't call unclean. And even then, Peter still argued with God, saying, no, it's unclean, right? And needed God to tell him three times, no, it's not. Um, I said so, I don't care what you think, right? So then he went to baptize these people, and then to emphasize his point further, where God emphasizes his sovereignty, the Holy Spirit comes upon all the people there before they're even baptized, right? Where Peter doesn't even know what to do, right? He's like, I don't know what happened, but you all got the Holy Spirit the same that we did, and they still baptized them, right? But they did it out of order. God doesn't need anybody to tell them how to do his job. Um, but the receiving of the Spirit um, is essential before the ministry can begin. And as we said, the Holy Spirit is sovereign and not bound by us. But instead, it is us who must be obedient to the Spirit, right? Which is why we must receive the Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit that is going to teach us. And this is why St. Peter was obedient to go to Joppa, in spite of his, of his arguments, and also why our Lord economically was obedient before going to, in going to the wilderness. So the first things for us in our lives as servants of God is to ask whether we believe in His Incarnation and Resurrection. And if we do, to testify of our belief and thus to receive the Holy Spirit. Someone took this oath on your behalf in almost all cases in this church, but some of you took it wittingly and knowingly later on in your lives. For those of you who are baptized as infants, it is important to ask yourself whether you still make that proclamation of belief in the Trinity or not, or whether it was just somebody testifying on your behalf before you could speak that you don't yourself participate in today. If you do not, it will make many things in faith seem very arbitrary and very difficult. The second thing is to be led by the Spirit. And what does the Spirit give us? As we read, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said unto you. The Spirit will teach you the Gospel. He will teach you the good news. He will teach you the words of Christ. He will teach you the words of the prophets if you allow Him. And if you allow Him, He will urge you to keep living the Gospel. This is absolutely necessary if anyone is to preach. In the Pauline Epistle, we saw St. Paul showing the importance of understanding the spirit of things and the right and wrong way, that there is a right and a wrong way to practice things. He was rebuking people for using a real gift in a wrong way. 
speaking in tongues, for example, for the sake of speaking in tongues, right? There was a real gift of speaking in tongues, right? Whereas everybody was just screaming randomness um, in the middle of the church. People spontaneously were all prophesying, right? They were prophesying of God, but they were using the gift in the wrong, wrong way and in the wrong context. It was complete and utter chaos. And he was reminding them that everything had order to it and that the objective of the gift, right, is the revelation of the truth. St. Paul had that discernment because he was a true apostle filled with the Spirit and taught directly by God himself. St. Paul spent three and a half years learning from Christ in Arabia. There's a right and wrong teaching. There is such thing as that. And it's important for us to know this. Imagine if your doctor tried to diagnose you based on how he felt or she felt, right? If that was the standard of care, uh, I feel like maybe you have appendicitis, but I don't really know. Um, so let's pretend you have appendicitis. Nobody would accept this, right, as a standard measure of care. And the same is true of doctrine or faith, right? It's not about how you feel or how I feel, right? Is that the Spirit teaches us the truth and we submit ourselves to the truth because there is such thing as absolute truth. And this is particularly true of doctrine, which we need to realize in our generation, which emphasizes your personal truth, right? You might have your own personal subjective experiences, but there is an absolute truth, and to it is what we vow. There's a doctrinal side to faith, and there's a moral side to faith. So the question then is, are you led by the Spirit? Is it the gospel that governs your life? Because if it does, then there should be no hatred among us. No spouse should be unforgiving of his or her spouse. Parents shouldn't be angry with their children, and their children shouldn't be angry with their parents. Each of us would turn the other cheek. Each of us would be upset if we know that we are hurting someone, rather than to try and defend ourselves from being hurt. Each of us would be patient with others. Each of us would walk the extra mile, wanting to hear what the person asking us to walk the mile with us wants from us. So ask yourself if you are led by the Spirit or if you are led by your own self. If you are led by your own self, then you will take justice into your own hands. You will teach based on the biases of your own hearts. You will teach based on the things that you care about. And your gospel will fail because you are relative, you're not absolute. If we are to project the image and likeness of God, then we need to know who God is. And in order to do so, we must live by the Spirit. But after being led by the Spirit, something very critical happens. You experience hardship. Our Lord didn't shy from temptation nor did the apostles. After the Lord was led, the devil came to him to tempt him. This was the first thing that, that was a result of it. After the disciples received the Spirit, they were beaten, scourged, imprisoned, and eventually murdered, except for St. John. Yet all of them had peace in the face of adversity. St. Peter fell asleep in prison, right? So clearly he wasn't in any kind of, of anguish if he could fall asleep on a hard floor like that. The devil... The devil used the word of God, however, to tempt even our Lord, emphasizing even more the need for us to know the scripture. He used wealth, he used human needs, 
And the Lord didn't succumb to any of these because he is the truth. Unfortunately for us, these are the places where we often fall. Some of us fall for the human so-called needs, the, the loaf of bread, that saint, that the devil is tempting our Lord with. Some of us are willing to work Sundays to make a few extra bucks. Some of us are not willing to say no to random physical pleasures, sensual pleasures of every kind, even when we know that they're wrong, citing that we just need it. We just, we just need to have it. We, we are all prone to do these things. We all have done and will do these things. Some of us, for the sake of ego or prestige, will listen to what the devil tells us, right? The devil is offering Christ to be honored above all. And sometimes we will fall for these, using scripture about how much God cares for us. We might lust after positions of authority in the church and twist the gospel to justify our positions. We might find another using the gospel, taking certain verses to tell other people why they are wrong and we are right. Or we may do the opposite, we may refuse to serve others in the church or in the community, claiming that these people are unservable or various other things, which is, at the end of the day, our own egos. The reality is that often we are choosing personal needs over others' needs, but we might use the words of God from any source to justify our our inability to be perfect, as opposed to just acknowledging that we're unable to be perfect. But these trials and temptations are actually important if we actually fight. These trials and temptations bring us knowledge of our weaknesses, which we can lay before God. It is like someone who wants to get jacked at the gym, right? You don't get jacked by watching people work out, although that might give you some information on on how to work out. You don't, get, you don't get pumped by watching videos or pictures of, of, of muscled people, right? That's not going to make you strong. You don't yourself get jacked by observing the machines at the gyms and just walking in and looking at them and, and applauding those who are, who are actually using them, right? You have to actually start doing the work, right? That's the only way that you're going to be able to do it is to start doing the work, doing the cardio, eating right. And those things are painful and often not fun at all. You're supposed to be sore the day after a workout, right? That's a sign that something went right. If you weren't sore, you didn't, you didn't challenge yourself. And you're going to suffer if you've been eating too much and suddenly you now have to have portion control. It's not fun. But all of it is worth it when you find yourself healthy in the end, right? When there's an objective of being healthy. There will be days when you make mistakes in your regimen. That's fine. That happens, right? We do fall short of perfect health, so long as we don't abandon the goal of health, right? It's one thing to fall, and it's one thing not to care, and it's even another thing to justify wrong, right, as opposed to working towards them. Those falls and rises become experience for you that you can impart to others. I remember one time when I was a novice, at St. Anthony's in California, and a certain monk came to me um, and told me off very dramatically. And I went to confession um, in the monastery, and I told the abbot, you know, I was insulted, I didn't tell him who it was by this monk, and he told me this and this and this and this, and I answered him perfectly. 
Right? I answered him according to the paradise. Akhdeet, I have sinned. I'm so bad. I will be obedient, etc., etc. And I was like, this is what I said to him. But inside, I said, you're not even a monk. You're a horrible person. You don't know how to treat people. Right? And these were the things that were inside of, of my heart. And the abbot laughed and said, good. I said, which part was, was good? And he said, you thought you were patient because you're locked up in your room reading your Bible and praying and you thought you were patient, but you're not patient, right? You discovered your impatience by being exposed by somebody who's trying your patience and you discovered that you don't have that virtue, right? Your only way to find out is to be exposed and then to work on it. You're not going to get it in yourself, right? You have to be exposed to others. And so falling is inevitable, right? But to learn how to stand up strongly means to be put in the midst of trials and tribulations. And it is here that is the final step. That now a person can go out and teach others to show God to others only after they have had their own experience with God and having the knowledge of God. Just as a fit person becomes an image of fitness just by looking at them, right? Not because they're necessarily standing there and telling them what it means to be fit by just being that. So does the person who is obedient to the Spirit become an image of God to others because they themselves will be transformed. The person who has had falls and rises and struggles will have real, not theoretical, experience with God. This person can and will speak to others about the glory of God, both in deed and in word, not just one or the other, but it will be in both, because he will not be ashamed to speak of the reason for the glory of God that is within him, the indwelling of God himself that we have received. Peter denied our Lord. John and James coveted glory. Thomas doubted like crazy. He died a glorious death, but he was a really sarcastic person sometimes. Thaddeus was a skeptic. Matthew was a horrible person. But all of these men became obedient to their callings, and all of these men were transformed by the Spirit when they submitted to the Spirit. And all of these men, now we call illustrious, and their sound of all of these people who were former all of these things has reached the ends of the world. They transformed everyone. They literally turned the world upside down. The human world, the whole of civilization of men, completely changed after Pentecost. The Roman Empire was turned on its head, right? This small nucleus of a cult within the Jews completely transformed all of society to the point that our very calendar this day changed because of it. This is the power of the spirit of those who are obedient to him. The same God can do the same thing with each of us if we walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. With all lowliness and meekness, as St. Paul says, fighting for the truth, rising when we fall, so that God may continue the ministry of apostleship through us, given to all of us by grace. Glory be to our God forever and ever, and to the age of ages. Amen. Oh, nee, oh,